Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Hey, everybody. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. On the show today, Rob Bonta was picked by Governor Gavin Newsom to be California's attorney general after Javier Becerra joined the Biden administration. Now he's facing the voters and a laundry list of issues that are facing him in the state. The AG is sometimes called the state's top cop. And with everything from smash and grab videos that go viral to hate crimes, gun violence, consumer fraud and enforcing environmental laws. And that's just a partial list. The Attorney General has a lot of power. He's here to talk with us about his priorities and the November election. Attorney General Bonta, welcome back to Political Breakdown. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. In person, too. In person, we should say. Lovely to in the flesh. You. Yeah, you too. exactly. So on Wednesday, uh, you announced that you were creating an Office of Gun Violence Prevention. Um, why is that needed? And isn't that kind of thing already happening at the state and local levels? We think it's very important that it happen in the California Department of Justice, in our attorney general's office. In that regard, it's uh, first uh, ever in the history of the California Department of Justice. It's the first of its kind nationally. And it focuses on something very different than what you traditionally see a prosecutor's office focusing on, waiting for the crime to happen and then prosecuting it afterwards. We think that there are real tools that should be lifted up and scaled and utilized to prevent the gun violence from happening in the first place. But we've had laboratories of innovation in California, like San Diego, where City Attorney Mara Elliott is uh, using gun violence restraining orders to great effect. We've seen programs like Ceasefire and Peacekeepers, violence interruption programs in places like Stockton and Oakland work. We should be involved in using the the bully pulpit and um, the, the, the state role that we have to make those impactful, effective programs work to keep communities and neighborhoods safe in more places than they currently are. How much of this is about like data and, to your point, sort of best practices? Because we know that for years the federal government tied the CDC's hands around collecting gun violence data. We know UC Davis has stepped up and done that work. Mm-hmm. But how, how will that help and, and what is the role of that in this office? I'm a huge believer in the data. I think it's a powerful driver of effective, impactful policy. Uh, Dr. Wintemute at uh, UC Davis has been a great partner in identifying pathways forward based on the data. We want to do things that are work we don't, uh, that work. We don't want to take shots in the dark and hope for the best. If the data says that certain programs and policies will keep communities safer, we should use those. The data shows that our policies and practices in California keep people safer. 37% uh, lower firearm mortality rate than the national average, 58% lower for kids. So uh, data is very important. You know, whenever there's a new gun control law uh, that's passed, supporters of the Second Amendment, opponents of gun control will say, well, why don't you just enforce the laws that are already on the books? And California does have tools. And for example, your office is able to take guns away from convicted felons. There's always a huge backlog. Um, Where are we on that? The 
California Department of Justice's Armed Prohibited Persons System, or APPS, is first in the nation, unique in the nation. We do exactly what you said. We uh, identify using data, uh, using databases and cross-referencing them, individuals who we know have guns, one, and two, are prohibited from having guns, two, uh, because of a criminal conviction, because of a restraining order, uh, because of a disqualifying mental illness. And uh, our brave and courageous uh, agents, our men and women, literally knock on doors of those that we know have the guns and shouldn't have them and remove them from their hands before someone can get hurt. And right now, uh, because more, there have been more um, restrictions on who can have a gun, and with the passage of time, we're, we are um, removing from the apps list about the same um, amount each year as new entries on the list. Mm. So it's not a backlog. It's a dynamic um, uh, list. The backlog was cleared after three years uh, in, uh, after 2016 when new funding was, was provided. So you need more resources? More resources are always helpful, and I think new approaches also, and um, greater partnership. We have uh, uh, $10 million now that we're giving to local jurisdiction, sheriff's department, like Ventura County Sheriff's Department, who wants to be part of the effort. We welcome that. We want them to help. Help us clear uh, the, the, the list and keep people safe. Um, a new approach called relinquishment, we think, is very important, where you remove the gun from the hand of the individual at the moment they are prohibited in court when they're convicted or when they're served with a t- temporary restraining order so they don't have that lag time where they're, they have the gun but shouldn't and are on the list waiting for, uh, for an engagement from our office. You brought, you brought up a sheriff's department. And, you know, I think law enforcement's role in this has always been interesting. There's a diversity of viewpoints among law enforcement and different agencies often about where gun laws should be or shouldn't. We've also heard a lot of talk in recent years about um, extremists being members of law enforcement. There was a big report put out a few years ago. I'm just curious, like, about those conversations and what you like, are are you concerned about that in California? Um, or are you seeing a lot of these agencies really partner down to the rank and file level? We get a good level of partnership. We appreciate our local partners. Um, sometimes there are different political views among the rank and file or even even among the leadership. But there is we focus on what we can agree on. There's bipartisan support for the armed prohibited person system. That It got funding from bipartisan legislators and, and, and governor. And so we focused on that. There might be some other laws that there's less agreement on. So uh, we, we agree when we can agree. We seek and we find common ground when it's there. If it's not there, we'll, we'll, we'll focus on other things and go our separate ways. But we are concerned about extremism in law enforcement. We are concerned about gangs and law enforcement. We're looking and uh, we are ready, willing and able to uh, perform investigations when appropriate. One place that has been an issue is L.A. County and the uh, sheriff down there, Alex Villanueva. uh, This week, you uh, let them know that you were taking away an investigation uh, er, about a week ago. Sheriff's deputies showed up at the house of uh, supervisor, uh, former uh, legislator, Sheila Kuehl, confiscated a bunch of stuff. Uh, She says it's political payback for a dispute she's been having. Why did your office feel the need to wade into that, especially very close to an election where he's on the ballot? First, let me say that we have an ongoing pattern and practice investigation into the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. It started under my predecessor, um, Javier Becerra, before he was appointed Secretary of Health and Human Services, and we're continuing. It's the largest sheriff's department in the nation, so it's a big... um, um, issue that we're working on. And specifically on, on the issue of us taking over the criminal investigation, um, very important to, to note that the sheriff asked us to take over part of the investigation, the allegations that um, 
individuals were tipped off about the execution, imminent execution of a search warrant. Uh, the other part of it, the underlying public corruption uh, criminal investigation, the sheriff himself has recused himself from. So they're already ha- the, uh, recusals and requests for us to take this on. And we thought in the public interest, uh, because they're inextricably intertwined, we should take the whole investigation. And we have, and we've notified the sheriff's department uh, of that recently, earlier this week. And how do you make sure that you're not, you know, treading into a place where voters could be Right. I mean, we influenced. hear so much about this on the national yeah. level. Yeah. Do you guys think about that? I mean, we just take the issue as it comes and take it straight up. And we had a request from the sheriff to take on part of this case um, within days ago. So that timing was determined by the sheriff, not by us. And we wanted to be responsive and we wanted to be uh, appropriately comprehensive and, and take the entirety of the investigation since they have inextricably intertwined pieces. And so we've done so at the request of the sheriff and in, in the public interest. All right. Another hot button issue this week. We've been hearing a lot about immigration. We know that uh, the Texas and Florida governors have actually used state resources to send migrants seeking asylum to the home of Vice President Kamala Harris in D.C. to Martha's Vineyard in Cape Cod. What would you do? What are you preparing to do if a busload or a plane load of migrants gets sent here by one of these governors? Let me first say these are cruel and inhumane publicity stunts. They're seeking attention um, and they're using people, human beings, as pawns, uh, hurting them, misleading them, mistreating them. And it's wrong. And uh, the governor's been clear on that. I'm clear on that. And to the extent that there are laws that have been violated and they fall within my jurisdiction, we will enforce those laws when they're broken. Um, Of course, when Texas is sending immigrants from Texas to Massachusetts, um, there's jurisdictional issues that might not um, intersect and have a nexus with us here. Maybe the U.S. Department of Justice has a role. Maybe the sheriff in Texas who's been involved has a role. So I invite individuals who care about law uh, being enforced and the rule of law to enforce it where there is an appropriate nexus with your jurisdiction and the actions of governors like Governor Abbott and Governor DeSantis. What can you and Governor Newsom do to prepare for that eventuality, though? I mean, I'd like to see them do it. Um, maybe they will. Um, you know, I think they're trying to make a point that as impacted uh, states by immigrants, uh, they, they want to show uh, with these other states is, is their thinking irrational as it might be what it means to have uh, um, immigrants in their state. We, we know very well what it means to have immigrants in our state. We, we border Mexico. Immigrants have made us great. They've made us strong. They're part of the beautiful diversity that makes California who we are. So it, it would fall very flat to try to show us here in California who have embraced and loved and lived with immigrants and uh, invited their participation in making our state great to try to make a point to us. But maybe they will. And if they do, uh, we'll evaluate our our legal options and um, be as aggressive as possible in response. You said, I hope they do. I do not want them to. Okay. <laughs> I, mean, it, it's, it's, uh, I hope they don't for the uh, humanity and and. But and it sounds and, like you've got a support. Yeah. But I mean, I, I I I don't see how they would would do that. But maybe they will, and if so, we'll respond Why appropriately. Can I just, yeah. We are. What are to... they trying to show us? We know we know what it's like to live uh, uh, with immigrants in a way that's humane and compassionate and loving and supportive and embracing and inclusive, and uh, they have not figured that out. 
And so I'm not sure what they're trying to prove to us. Uh, they would be proving nothing to us. It would just be another example of their cruelty and inhumanity. All right. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with California Attorney General Rob Bonta. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED. Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions. Online or through Star One's mobile app, Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. Our guest today is Attorney General Rob Bonta. He was named to the job by Governor Newsom. He's facing the voters in November, running against Republican Nathan Hockman, who is a former U.S. attorney and, by the way, will be on our show next week uh, with us. So be sure to check in uh, for that. Um, Attorney General Bonta, uh, we saw a big uptick in concern about crime. Um, We saw our district attorney recalled in part over that. And a lot of it's driven by these viral videos, smash and grab videos, horrible hate crimes. Do you think that those sorts of incidents and how they go viral, does that exaggerate the problem? I think they could be reflective of a problem, but they could be received as being representative in a way that the the data doesn't show. I think it's always good to look at the overall data um, and see what it says about uh, any increases that there might there might be in organized retail crime and um, smashing grabs and uh, violence. And we've provided that data at the California Department of Justice. There is a seven percent increase in in homicides year over year. There's an increase in some crimes in some places. That's what the data shows. If you pull the camera back and look at where we are over time, we are one of the lowest levels of crime in the history of our state. Um, But that doesn't make it okay that there are any increases in any crimes anywhere when people are getting hurt or property is being destroyed or taken, it's wrong. And the answer is there need to be consequences. You need to be held accountable. You need to arrest people when they commit crimes, stop them from hurting or harming people or their property, and make sure that there is appropriate accountability and consequence. More serious crimes, more serious consequences. Less serious crimes, proportionate consequences. But there always must be accountability and consequence. You know, your role is as Scott said earlier, often referred to as the top cop. A lot of the conversation in the primary from the Republican side was a law and order message. But my understanding is the vast majority of what you guys deal with is actually civil. So can you just talk about, like, what is the attorney general's role here when we talk about public safety? And what are you doing around that? Because, you know, I I think you all have like 5,000 attorneys. I mean, there's a lot going on (laughs) at the office. We have uh, 5,000 plus staff 1,200 plus attorneys, a billion dollar a year budget. We have both sides of the house, both civil and criminal. And we have both uh, on the criminal side, both legal, um, so our attorneys who prosecute and our agents who do law enforcement. So we have a very comprehensive approach to enforcing laws. On the civil side, we enforce civil laws, like housing laws and civil rights laws and constitutional laws. And we um, 
uh, vindicate uh, violations of the law when people's uh, rights are violated. On the criminal side, we're doing uh, an abundance of things to keep uh, Californians safe. Uh, one of the things I'm most proud of is our special operations unit, which has done very complicated investigations and surveillance into um, organized criminal groups and dismantled or organized criminal activity, whether it be um, moving illegal drugs, including fentanyl, or illegal weapons, including ghost guns, or trafficking people for sex or labor. So is that usually where you guys come in as the higher level, sort of bigger organized crime stuff? Not Because I think a lot of people look around and they want to blame whoever they can yeah. for the things they don't like in their own community. We do investigations and we don't do patrol. So we don't have officers that are walking the block or in a patrol vehicle. That's local law enforcement. That's our sheriffs. That's our police um, police officers. And we work hand in hand and we get called in on a very complicated issues. sometimes where a local law enforcement has hit a wall and hit a stalemate and need our expertise and our partnership to help uh, break open a case or, 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 or solve a, a crime. And so we're very proud and eager to do that. We've done that many times, including with organized retail crime, human trafficking, um, hate crimes as well. And, and, um, organized criminal activity with guns, drugs, and and human trafficking. You know, historically, uh, the groups that advocate for crime victims have been very pro-law and order, anti-reform, pro-death penalty, that kind of thing. Marisa uh, has been doing some great reporting, looking at how that may be changing a little bit and how the face of victims groups is changing. I think there's $300 million in the new budget that the governor signed for victims. How is that going to be used and what would you like to see it used uh, for? Incredible work done by the California legislature and the governor, a number of bills and budget requests that I supported that help uh, survivors and victims heal, that provide um, services, uh, that trauma-informed care, um, uh, culturally competent care, um, language access, that provide more eligibility for, for more support from our um, victims' compensation program uh, that look at the holistic needs of a of a survivor and a victim and provide that support that will help them get back on their feet, maybe get to a safe place if they're a victim of domestic violence, um, and get the healing and services that they need. And uh, that is right. That's the right way to do it. That is uh, victim-centered and an appropriate approach by uh, California that I'm very proud of uh, to have supported. I know. I think you went down to the floor on the end of the legislative session to uh, <laughs> to make some asks. But I do want to ask you about another thing, because you have been largely, I would say, on the reform side of things. You helped uh, write a bail reform uh, law that actually got overturned and then have supported a lot of these changes. On the other hand, you are a member of the AAPI committee, uh, community and that uh, the hate crimes we've seen in recent years really soaring, I think, has, I know, touched you personally um, and been an issue what is your approach to this? Because a lot of what we hear for are calls for hate crime enhancements, which are sort of, I think, for a lot of people on the reform side, a regressive form of approaching criminal justice. Is that the best approach? There are many approaches to addressing hate crimes. And my view is we can and must seek to be and we must be safe and fair. That we can't say we're going to be fair in our system, but uh, uh, risk safety, or that we're going to be safe, but uh, accept unfairness and injustice in the system. We have to be both. We have to be ambitious enough to, 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 to be both. And that means fixing broken parts of the system where they exist, being honest about what's not working, what's unfair, what disparate impacts are based on race or, uh, or, or other factors, and always, always, always making sure that we're safe in the process. And for me, hate crimes are attacks not just against an individual, but against a community. They're very painful in that regard. And it's very hard to prove a hate crime. Mm. And when you can, I believe it is appropriate 
to have an enhancement on the table and, and, and to use it. Is it the, is it the only way? Uh, is it the best way? Uh, look, uh, the data shows that what deters crime the most is knowing and believing that you're going to be arrested if you commit it, that you're going to get caught, not that you're going to get 10 years or 15 years instead of 10. So we should do what the data tells us to do, arrest people when they uh, commit crimes, when they hurt others, and then hold them accountable. Um, reporting is an important part of addressing hate crimes. Education is an important part of addressing hate crimes. Um, and you know, getting services for the victims important too. And often for, for API um, victims and survivors, it needs to be trauma-informed, culturally competent, and right. with language access, and it hasn't been. So there's a lot of ways to, to do this better. We said at the top that you were uh, appointed by Governor Newsom after Javier Becerra, your predecessor, joined the Biden administration. And of course, he spent a lot of time when he was AG suing the Trump administration, like 120 different lawsuits on abortion, immigration, LGBT rights, just, you know, all right down the line. So you're not suing the Biden administration. So how has your office had to pivot? And I would assume that's freed up a few of those, you know, 5,000 lawyers. 1,200 yes. lawyers. We're giving everybody <laughs> oh, how many? Oh, it's 1,200? 12, 12, oh, okay, sorry. 5,000 employees. This, so. is how, this is how the telephone game works, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, what, what A.G. Becerra did at the time was what California wanted and needed. He, he, was, he had the right approach at the right time, fighting for our people, our values, our natural resources. Over 100 lawsuits against the, uh, the Trump administration, winning most of them. And we needed that. We wanted that. Uh, I was proud of him for that and grateful for him to him for that. N- now, the external threats are not the same, but they're still coming. Uh, they're coming from a different place in Washington, D.C., not from the White House, uh, but from the courthouse. And we've had decisions in the Dobbs decision, um, in the Bruin decision that have uh, put at risk our communities and neighborhoods when it comes to gun violence and gun safety, and that have uh, taken away rights that have been constitutionally protected for 50 years. So we're in a place where our grandmothers had more rights than our daughters. And we are fighting on those issues. We're, we're fighting for reproductive freedom. We're fighting for bodily autonomy. We're fighting for choice. We're fighting for safe neighborhoods and safe schools for our kids. So the fight might be different. It might not be coming from a Trump White House, but it's still coming. And there's also, unfortunately, more than enough to focus on inward when it comes to environmental justice, housing. We created a new housing strike force, uh, you know, the rises in some crimes in some places, um, civil rights and consumer rights and, and constitutional rights, um, ho- holding big corporate actors accountable when they break the law. We're doing all the above. And so uh, we, I see the role as being the people's attorney, making the people's fights my fights. You are listening to Political Breakdown from KQED. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and we are talking to California Attorney General Rob Bonta. This is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. You kind of touched on this, but um, you are a very staunch supporter of abortion rights, I know, uh, both as a legislator and attorney general. And your wife actually holds your former assembly seat. You stood next to her or by her last year as she spoke about her own abortion story. Um, And I'm just wondering what your experience was like in that moment. You didn't speak a lot about it at the time. Um, I know you were both at Yale, I think, when this this occurred. You've been together since your freshman year. Can you talk about from your perspective, that experience and why it, how or why it shaped where you stand today on that issue. I'm, I'm proud of Assemblymember Bontup. She's my partner in life, my partner in service. I'm proud of everything that she's done and that she fights for. Um, and we met when we were 17 years old. And that story was hers to tell. And it continues to be hers to tell. 
and hers to share when and uh, if she wants to on, on her terms. And um, my, um, I believe my role um, is and, and has been and continues to be to, to support her and also to, to be, um, to pursue with the, the power and authority and platform that I have, um, my convictions. And my convictions include believing that women should have the right to choose, period, uh, that there should be re- reproductive freedom and bodily autonomy um, for all women. For you know, I want it for um, my daughters and everyone's daughters and the next generation, the generation after that. And um, our views are shaped by our personal experiences and our lived experiences. And that's one of my views. Do you think it's important for men, though, to tell their stories? Because, you know, it is, it is a woman's choice, but it's also it involves your partner often. Yeah, I, I think so. I, um, I think if if there's communication and discussion between uh, partners about um, who is going to say what, and yeah. and there's knowledge and and an understanding, y- yes, I, I do think that. Well, let's talk about other members of your family and your parents. Uh, your parents helped organize uh, farm workers. I think when you were living in the Central Valley, you were there as a kid. Uh, obviously, you support. Farm workers' rights, and there is a bill on the governor's desk right now, AB 2183, that would make it easier for farm workers to unionize, vote by mail. The governor seems to be reluctant or even opposed to signing it. Uh, what would you have him do? I support that bill. I've, I've supported it in its prior forms. I've supported other uh, extensions of needed rights to our farm workers who I know from personal experience, from lived experience, from my time in La Paz with the United Farm Workers of America when my dad worked in the front office with Cesar Chavez and my mom with Dolores Huerta, that farm workers um, are are indispensable and are absolutely valuable and needed as they feed our state and feed our nation. And they deserve protections and dignity um, and respect in the workplace. Um, Part of that, for me, a general view has always been for um, workers to be able to organize to have a collective voice in the workplace, to have a voice about their um, the conditions and the safety of the workplace, to have a living wage, to have health care, to have retirement security. I've lived that. My parents were members of SEIU as state workers. I've been in, in a union. Um, unions make workers' lives better. And so um, it will not be a surprise that I support the bill. Um, and um, I'm the attorney general. I'm not the governor. Have you talked to him? Um, I've talked to him many times, but not about this. How come? <laughs> uh, this hasn't come up in our recent conversations. Uh, who knows what the future might hold? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, we should mention, too, that we've had you on the show before, and we've talked in depth about your biography. So folks should go back and check that out. It ran in December of last year. Um, you know, you kind of hit on this earlier, but I do want to ask you more about kind of what your office's approach to to fentanyl specifically. This is just a horrific crisis right now. We are seeing hundreds of people dying. And... You know, in the past, I think our approach to the war on drugs has been to lock people up, even low-level dealers. That's getting some pushback now. So I'm curious, what is the AG's role and how do you think both yourself and local law enforcement and and the broader government should be approaching this? I think we have a multifaceted role because this is a a crisis. Um, we're, We're losing loved ones and community members, children, kids, and we need to meet the moment and rise to the occasion. And one of the things we've been doing is in is holding opioid manufacturers uh, across the the country accountable for fueling the opioid crisis, including synthetic opioids, including fentanyl, and bringing billions of dollars to the state of California, to uh, counties, and to cities, to governments to help address um, 
our ongoing crisis to provide healing and services and programs and mitigation and uh, prevention. And so we've brought in billions of dollars in resources already. And there's more we can do. I asked the governor uh, for funding for a fentanyl task force, and um, he, I, I proposed it and he funded it. So we are putting that into place now. A deliberate and intentional ask by me to be front and center on this issue and focusing upstream on manufacturers and, and distributors and those who are bringing fentanyl in to California, not the... Um, you know, the, the teenager who is a one-off seller uh, of it, because that doesn't get make the most impact uh, on, on this issue. We've got just a little time left. Um, crime and punishment will be on people's minds as they vote in November on a number of things, including on this race. How do you want people to think about the issue of public safety and keeping themselves and their families and their neighborhoods safe uh, as, they, as they cast that vote? I think they should vote for and want someone who's strong on crime, effective on crime, smart on crime. And that is me. And we've demonstrated that uh, time and time again through our approaches that are both effective uh, and keep us safe and are fair as we do that. Uh, we've been involved in all the top issues that uh, affect um, our, our, our public safety today, whether it be guns or I illegal drugs or human trafficking or um, organized retail crime. We've been involved and been part of the biggest busts and takedowns in the state over the last year and a half. So I am the public safety candidate in this race. Um, and I also care deeply about rights and the rights of Californians, reproductive freedom, uh, as well as your right to be safe in your communities from gun violence. And I'm the only one who's fighting for those things. All right. We're going to leave it there. Attorney General Rob Bonta, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can follow me on Twitter at MLagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. Follow me on Twitter as well. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Feel free to DM us on Twitter with any story ideas you have related to the election. And as we said, Next week, his opponent, Rob, uh, Nathan Hockman. <laughs> yes, Freudian Nathan slip. Hockman uh, will be joining us. Uh, so make sure you tune in for that. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm David Axelrod, CNN's senior political commentator, former senior advisor to President Obama, and host of the Axe Files podcast. Join me each week as I interview key figures shaping our world from politics to the arts to sports and beyond. Listen on your favorite podcast app or ask your smart speaker to play The Axe Files with David Axelrod.